Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hello, and welcome to another action-packed episode of the Open World Podcast. I'm so excited for our guest today. His name is Andrew Henderson, and he is the blogger behind nomadcapitalist.com, and Andrew's mission is to show you that geography is no longer a limiting factor. You can exponentially improve your living situation by living without any borders, not being tied down to any particular country. And Andrew here, he's really a doer. That's what I love about him. He goes out and he does stuff. He doesn't just talk about it. Uh, his blog, it's one, it's one of the most established blogs in the location-dependent lifestyle today. He's been blogging for five years, and today his blog reaches over four million readers a year. He's been traveling since uh, about 2008, so about 10 years now. He's been to 89 countries, calls a, a variety of different places home, and he really works with people to, uh, he does boot camps, he blogs, he has a podcast, and he helps people to save hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes to create second passports, to start creating the business of their dreams, and to basically keep more of their money, live where they want, and become a global citizen. So if any of these topics resonate with you, you're absolutely going to love this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. It's fantastic to have you here. Well, it is uh, great to be back. I think we uh, have done this uh, before, and it's nice to talk to you. And, and yeah, I'm excited because I look at what's happening. There have been a lot of changes actually recently, especially in the United States, but also in other Western countries. And I mean, what I'm really excited about doing this year is helping people keep millions and millions of dollars of their money that they don't have to be paying uh, and that they can save by living the kind of lifestyle that you have talked about and you popularized. So I'm excited to be here. So I was on your podcast about a month ago, and we had so much fun in that conversation. I, w- I don't usually laugh that much during an interview, but it's, it's really great to talk to you because you're someone who walks the walk, um, someone who's got that worldly experience, and there's really no substitute for that. You know, So many people uh, say they want things, but then they just read books about it or they overwhelm themselves with information. They don't just get themselves out there. So Walk me back to the beginning, Andrew. Like, you know, who were you before? Where did you come from? How did you end up on this path? Well, we have now the registered trademark, go where you're treated best. And my father told me that when I was 12 years old. We were driving and he said, you know, this may not always be the country for you because I've been reading business books for about a year, uh, like Bill Gates and things like that. Uh, and I was very fascinated with business. He said, if you're going to be in business, as he was, he says, the United States will probably not be the country for the next 70 or 80 years that you're going to want to stay in. Go where you're treated best. And so I did, on the international side, I kind of did what you just mentioned, what most people do, which is like, I, I kind of said, yes, that's right. I want to be international. I read books about it. I, I took a few vacations. But then I went at 19 years old. I started a business. I was in the radio and media and marketing space. And the business got, um, you know, decent size rather quickly. I was making a six-figure income at, I don't know, 2021. And it hit me, oh, I got to pay all this money in tax. And so I kind of fumbled around for a couple of years, paid a lot of money in tax, eventually sold that company along the way. It started several other kind of smaller um, side projects that I kind of invested in and, and delegated control of. Uh, and so when everything was finally sold, um, I said, you know what? I don't want to do that again. I want to create a business where I can go where I'm treated best. Why pay 43% tax when I can pay 0 or 1% tax? Um, and I've taken a lot of steps to get there. And it took me a lot of effort along the way. It took me a lot of calling various people who weren't so smart. Uh, it took me a lot of learning and, and trial and error and putting square pegs into round holes. Uh, and that's what I've done. That's what I always did in business. I just figured stuff out, different industries. I would just go in and like four businesses that were very successful in the United States, tens of millions of dollars, I guess, in or eight figures in sales. And that's what we did. That's what I did. But then I started doing it with the international stuff. And now I've realized what it's taken me 10 years to do, someone else could replicate probably in less than two uh, if they had the kind of help in avoiding the problems that I ran into and really knowing how this stuff really works. And I continue to learn that stuff um, with every new thing I do. So I think that learning is, is important. And I want to ask you about those problems and the, uh, the dark times too, but I want to ask you, like, 
what was it that contributed to your success in creating these successful businesses and creating nomadcapitalist.com? Was it something that your father as an entrepreneur, did he pass along important skills to you? What would you say uh, contributed the most to your success? Well, you know, my father uh, was in the financial industry. He was not a big risk taker. He was a guy who was a very successful guy, and we got to see a lot of places. But I think really what I learned from my father was a mindset that most people don't have. It was a mindset about how to win, how to win with money, how to win, how to be aggressive, how to be tough. And I look back and, you know, I didn't realize at the time that not everyone else learned this stuff. Not everyone else learned how to avoid you know, bad risks. Not everyone learned as a kid how to avoid, you know, bad investments and how to delegate your time and where to focus. Um, I learned that. And, you know, I've taken what my father has talked about. I've adapted it. Um, but I think there was just a mindset that a mindset of someone else who's in business, who's kind of done it all, who's made investments, who's lost money, who's seen the shenanigans that go on in the business world. I mean, he just kind of imparted that to me. So where at this point, it almost feels kind of natural that I just go out and I start a business. Uh, you know, I started, like I said, four businesses in the United States and I just kept plugging away and just focused on what had to be focused on. I don't, I don't know if I could really relay the great secret to my success, but I'll tell you with Nomad Capitalist, the biggest thing was just doing it. I never expected it to be a business. I expected it to be a website. I expected to make investments on my own. Um, and I've created, I think the number one most visited website for offshore, for, you know, the nomadic financial movement, the financial side of it, we're number one. So I think it was just by going out and just saying, Hey, I got this residence permit. Here's what happened. Or, Hey, I'm getting this passport. I've written about uh, that a couple of times. I think people look at that and they, there's an authenticity, um, that, was never intended to be a business strategy. It was just an authenticity of, hey, I'm just a guy who's doing this. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And in a very opaque field of guys who use fake names and pretend and run around, um, I was real. And I think that that resonated with people because that's the way, that's what people want right now in this day and age. You know that. They're not looking for the man of mystery anymore. Um, and now yeah. I see plenty of people copying what I'm doing and, you know, that's okay. But, um, I think doing it was the most important for Nomad Capitalist. It was never supposed to be what it is now. Yeah, and you're all over the place. Like if I Google uh, Five Flags Theory, for example, you're like one or two um, perpetual traveler. I think you're top five for that as well. So, I mean, you've definitely done the work to establish yourself. And how much of, of this, this is a problem, Dave? Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, I, I want to know the answer to a question. And then I Google it, and then like I'm number one. It's like I have to read my own article <laughs> again to figure out the answer my question. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with things that I wrote uh, maybe yesterday, you know, so sometimes I have to go back and see what I said uh, when I write stuff. Um, but it's like you said, you know, life is continually learning, you know, and that's really the big secret, I think. Um, and if as long as you pursue a path of lifelong learning, um, you'll always grow. You'll always be surprised at what you can achieve. And as someone like you who um, you say you go where you're treated best, um, you're really looking for situations and scenarios where it's easy for you to win. How much of your success do you attribute to like just hard work and hustle, and how much is it of it is like working smarter or giving yourself an advantage? You know, everyone these days is talking about the hack. What's the hack? Everyone wants a shortcut, and I found that again, the most fun, the biggest, the most organically successful business that I've run. Um, even though I don't think I could sell it for maybe what I could have sold the first business for. Um, but that's been nomadic capitalist. It's, it's far and away number one. It's just because, um, I put the work in. So is that hustle? I guess it is. I mean, I guess I'm one of those guys and many of your listeners are probably too, where I claim I don't work very much, but I'm actually always thinking about various things. Um, especially on the, the offshore and the passport and all that kind of side, which, which gives me the knowledge. Um, but I, I will say, I mean, I think that now, uh, after a period of hustle, once you get everything started, which is really my skill, my skill is getting from zero to 60 and then someone else can manage it up to 70, 80, a hundred. Um, my skill recently has been working smart. So, I mean, I'm working for example, with 60 people every year and I'm probably going to reduce that who want to do what I've done. These are guys who are in the mid to high six figures, seven figures, one guy's in the eight figures in terms of income. 
and um, I'm helping them out. And you know, we have like 30, 35,000 people a year who want my help. Uh, I could go out and, and kill myself trying to chase after as many of them as possible. Um, but what I've determined is just you know trying to work smart and just take the people who are most like me and want to operate at a high level. So I think for me now, it's all about working smart, but it, I'm, I didn't get there because of some kind of hack. Um, and in fact, if I look back at businesses, the most successful were the ones where there were no hacks. It was hustle and then it was working smart. Okay, interesting. Well, you're definitely someone that uh, lives in a smart way, and I would love if you could share some of your experience with geo-arbitrage with our listeners. Both of us have been traveling for a very long time, living in a bunch of different countries. Um, you started out in Belize. I think I, start, I started out in Mexico, so we both started out south of the border of the U.S., but you've also lived in Germany, Greece, Spain, Thailand, Malaysia, China, Mexico, and a bunch of other places. And uh, you post a lot of interesting stuff on your Facebook profile, like how you took a $240 taxi from the airport. I think it was $240 from the airport in Tokyo. And I was thinking, like, <laughs> you know, that's the reason why I don't live in these developed countries, because what's the difference between a taxi in Japan and a taxi in Thailand or something? You know, when you're paying $240 for a taxi from the airport in Tokyo versus $4 for a taxi in Bangkok, you know, it's just for the privilege of taking that taxi in Tokyo. And for me, that's really all about, you know, that's geo-arbitrage. That's about, you know, living somewhere where your money can go a lot further, where you can get a better lifestyle. But as someone who's an expert on this topic, what does it mean to you? Well, I, I actually started out in Europe. I mean, one of the first places I went was Norway. I actually learned some Norwegian, which all of which I've forgotten now because nobody will speak it with you. Uh, and then I was in Ireland and then uh, other places. And then China was one of the earlier ones for me. But um, I, I've never been a big um, South America guy, although I think Colombia is a great place. But um, for me, geo-arbitrage, I mean, listen, I agree. Uh, I went back to the United States uh, for the first time in almost four years uh, last summer and didn't feel like home. I felt like a tourist there. And it was kind of nice to go for six or seven days, stay at the Phoenician in Phoenix, have a nice time, take the Ubers around. But, you know, uh, after paying $21 for breakfast at Denny's, uh, it was nice to go back and be in Eastern Europe and then um, in Asia. And so I look at it as saying, you know, I... I do think if you're at the high level, now I'm working with guys who, again, are anywhere from you know quarter million, half a million, a million dollars a year. Uh, the higher you go, I think that getting at least those spurts of the developed world, there is a difference between uh, a taxi in Tokyo and a taxi in you know Laos, for example. Um, it's so much more seamless in Tokyo, and I've realized that I need some of that in my life. I don't want to live in Tokyo full-time or New York or London. I totally agree with you there. But I like to mix it up and kind of go and get my fill because, let me, let's me let be honest, I'm in Malaysia right now. Here's, here's what I call the nomad tax. Okay, I pay very, very, very little tax legally, by the way, legally, uh, on income uh, or my business. But when I wanted to buy a blender, I got a blender from online. It didn't work right out of the box. I threw it in the trash, and I went to the store, and I paid too much for it. Uh, when I want to buy a nice pair of shoes, you go to Gucci here, it's double the price of Turkey so or, or London. So occasionally, it's nice to go back to London, get in a taxi with a guy who speaks your language and actually understands what you're saying, uh, and then come back and then you know live the rest of your life doing the geo-arbitrage. So I do think that there are some hidden costs if you're trying to live at a higher level in the emerging countries. And so what my strategy is, is kind of middle of the road emerging countries to live, lower emerging countries for doing business and investing, and interspersing those with trips to London, trips to Greece, trips to Singapore, uh, et cetera, in between to get your fill and, and to feel like you're not totally disconnected. That's exactly what I found as well. Like I, I like to live in in countries where I can live comfortably, like Thailand or Vietnam or uh, whatever it might be, you know, do my work there. Because if I'm just going to be going to a coffee shop and, you know, working on my laptop, then it really doesn't matter if I'm in Taipei or Saigon, for example, um, or Tokyo. You know, I'm basically just kind of doing the same thing. But I've really found it fun to to travel in some of those places like Hong Kong or, you know, Taiwan, where I'm paying a lot more to travel, but having a great experience and getting my fill. And you brought up a really interesting point where you said there's like hidden costs in certain countries. 
And I find that to be true. Like, I remember when I was in Buenos Aires, and, uh, you know, like a, a slice of pizza might be a dollar back when I was there. Um, like four pesos. I don't know how, much, how many pesos in a dollar now. But uh, basically, a can of Campbell's soup was like $15. It was absolutely ridiculous. You know, uh, a can of soup that you would get paid for like $1 or maybe 50 cents back home in the U.S. And I found that to be true in places like where I am now in Vietnam. Um, you know, like the local food, the, the pho is like, you know, 66 cents or something like that. But if you try to get foreign food, I mean, you're paying like 5 to $10 a meal or something like that. Yeah, I just got um, uh, these, uh, like these smoothie packets to go with my blender, the aforementioned blender. I got these. They're like New Zealand organic. Uh, it's like a mix. You get all the berries and just put it in the blender. And it's like 9 or 10 bucks. And you think, oh, that's a ripoff. Well, if you try and buy strawberries, blueberries, raspberries, they're not growing those in Malaysia. So you got to have them flown in. But, I mean, so what I look at it as is there is a tipping point. Um, and you know, if you're making, let's just say you're at kind of the middle end, let's say you're at, you know, half a million dollars a year, you know, if you're coming from the U S you're probably paying $200,000 in tax. Well, you know, paying an extra $6 every time you want to buy some strawberries and blueberries, uh, to save $200,000, probably not the worst scenario. I mean, even if you're making a hundred grand and you save 20 grand, uh, or 25 grand still works out pretty well, I think. Um, but I think that there's this idea that everything should be cheap. I remember uh, I took a friend of mine to uh, Cambodia, and he was like really into watches. And so we went to the um, there's like a Rolex store in this casino, and he's like, "These are more expensive than the U.S. I thought it'd be cheaper. We're in like a in like a, a third world country." He said, and it's like you know Rolex is not just gonna you know I mean it's still a Rolex, right? They're not selling their watches uh, at half price. And I think that that's a misconception that some people who are getting into this have. I mean, for me. I look at it and say, if my costs are lower across the board, I want to know what am I making per year, divide that by 2,000 hours in a year. That's what my time's worth. And so for me, walking five minutes to the expensive store, buying the blender for 125 bucks to not have to wait around or traipse through some back alley somewhere, well worth it. Um, and, and I think, again, that's just the nomad tax. If you're saving overall and you have a better quality of life, by the way, let's not forget how many guys and how many women and how many people come to this part of the world and just meet more interesting friends, more worldly people. They meet better you know, relationships. I mean, that's worth something, too. So this idea that every single thing has to be cheaper, I think, is, is a fallacy. Well, that's a great point that you just brought up. Then you meet so many interesting people when you're abroad. Um, you know, so many people with like so much world experience, so much life experience. I basically met you in real life before I even knew anything about you uh, in Kuala Lumpur a few years ago, and we went out and had some Indian food, had a great discussion. There was someone else with us. I can't remember who else was with us. Yeah, the Airbnb. Oh, Jasper. Yeah, I think Jasper yeah. was with us. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's a great point. So I find for me that. Um, well, I could go in a couple of directions, but I just want to say that, uh, for example, like supplements, whenever I'm looking for like uh, vitamins or protein shakes or stuff like that, it's always more expensive abroad than in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so there's certain things like I, I now I go to Thailand to do all my supplement shopping, for example. So I'll, I'll focus on certain things in certain countries um, that I enjoy that I can benefit from. Um, but speaking of the U.S., like you've really been uh, hard on the US lately. It's your native country, but you said recently that uh, you went back for the last time, like you never want to go back. Can you tell me why you're so harsh on the US now? Well, I'm not harsh, actually. I mean, I think that, you know, I've come over the course of the years uh, to be, to have a, a, a respect for the United States that, I mean, people who would have read, you know, five plus years ago would not have seen, um, you know, I, I have said that, that maybe um, at some point they won't allow me to go back in. Uh, but uh, And so uh, there may come a time when it's not up to me. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I actually, uh, as the years have gone on, have become more and more uh, appreciative of what they do. I don't agree with the policies. I don't agree with a lot of the things the money is spent on. Um, and I'm very happy that for years I legally paid zero. Because I go to Serbia where I have so many friends. My team is from there. I have many great people who I know in Serbia. I see the damage. I see the devastation. I see the lives that were changed 20 years ago, people whose fathers died, people who have sad stories, and it makes me sick to my stomach. But you set that aside, and you look at the country, you look at the people, um, 
I, I have an appreciation for it, but what I've said is it's not for me. Uh, now, again, that's not to say that maybe there won't be a time when um, if I want to go back to Las Vegas, I'll hope people to do that and and uh, you know spend a week in Vegas and maybe take some friends from overseas and show them to the places I used to go, or to go back to Phoenix again and stay at the Phoenician, or go to Miami and stay at the the, the uh, Miami edition and just have fun. But you know, I think that the the fallacy is that we need to go back to our home country. I mean, whatever there is in the United States, you can find somewhere else. Um, you know, I mean, people pay gazillions of dollars to live in Malibu. There's like a hundred other beaches around the world, like that are just as nice. I mean, you know, you, I mean, it's like there's too many beach resorts these days. I mean, I, I'm I'm almost like afraid to buy beach resort property uh, because I'm afraid that when's the next big beach resort going to crop up in some new country that it's just going to devalue the beach real estate. So, I mean, I I just I mean, for me, I don't see the value in going, I don't want to live there from a cost perspective and a tax perspective. Um, and it's just not a country that I feel, um, like I belong in and I feel comfortable in. Um, so, uh, you know, I respect that my parents and obviously 320 million other people choose to live there. Uh, and let's not, let's be honest, Danny, we all vote with our feet. If you're living in the United States, because you want to be. Um, so I respect that. And I hope that those people enjoy themselves and live the life that they want. I'm doing what I want. It's not for me. It doesn't feel comfortable for me. And I've come to, I think, respect that, you know, uh, the government is a mess. Um, but, you know, some people perhaps mean well. And, and, and you know, I mean, it just is what it is. We all, it, it's a matter of, is it a good fit, Right. I, I, I've come to realize that whether it's somebody who wants my help, who I just don't really want to help, it's not that they're a bad person. It's, you know what? It's not a good fit for me or it's not a good fit for them. And for me, the United States is not a good fit. I say that with less judgment than ever before. It's just not a place where as a resident, I feel comfortable. Maybe as a tourist, but not a resident. Well, you said the government's a mess, and I think that could apply to almost anywhere, right? Like, I mean, you're in Malaysia now, and Malaysia's got huge problems with corruption at the highest levels. Uh, the, the prime minister received like a $100 million donation to his bank account in Malaysia. Um, and I think that the real struggle here is people, individuals versus governments, right? I mean, governments seem to be like the biggest obstacle to human freedom and happiness, in uh, all the things that they, they try to do to control our lives and, um, you know, take from us and take everything from themselves. Well, I do agree. I mean, it's one of those things I will tell you for me on a personal happiness level. Um, you know, I've realized I, I'm not going to be a crusader. Uh, I'm not a guy who stays and fights. Uh, part of what I like about the countries that I live in, uh, at least many of them, uh, and where I have homes is that I can be gleefully detached from the situation, uh, and that I can be kind of left alone. Um, you know, I don't look like I belong in Malaysia. They pretty much leave me alone. Um, and I think that the situation will be just fine. You know, the government sure creates a lot of problems. I think that while philosophically I, I I'm in that camp and I think that getting it down to the tiniest possible size uh, like beyond what anybody else would probably think is reasonable, that would be a good thing philosophically. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, it's not the reality. Uh, I look at people, I'm great friends with uh, the guys from Lieberland. They're starting Lieberland. I mean, I think Lieberland has a lot of challenges before they're accepted, and I wish them the best. But you know, is that a reasonable thing to do? Am I going to wait around for a Lieberland passport? Um, the answer is no. So I think that um, sure, the hardcore anarchists and minarchists and libertarians and whatever other types of people there are might think that, uh, you know, what I'm saying is, is too pragmatic. Uh, I believe in being pragmatic. That's part of the secret to my success. That's how I move into a new home and I turn it from an empty shell to a furnished art hanging in the wall, pots in the kitchen, lights installed, beds with everything in seven days by being pragmatic not by wishing and hoping. And so the reality is there are countries where you can be a citizen, where you can be a resident, where you can have a bank account, where you can have a company, where they will leave you alone and treat you very nicely. And that's the framework that I prefer to operate in. And I continually reevaluate what the new opportunities are, whether it's cryptocurrency, whether it's whatever else. But I think uh, 
while I agree with you philosophically, I, you know, the government ain't going away. Yeah. It's a matter of – what they do in China and what they do in Asia is so beautiful. I mean the Chinese, mainland Chinese, it's like they just operate like the government doesn't exist basically. I mean they're basically like the most anarchist – you know, one of the most anarchist societies in mindset. Uh, they just, you know, they just act as if, you know, they just do what, what they need to do. Don't they have um, to pay a lot of bribes and such to do business in China? Well, I mean, the bribe issue, I guess, is uh, is changing. But what I'm saying is, I mean, if you're just kind of an average business owner, I mean, people in the United States and people in the Western world are so conditioned to ask for permission. Everyone's like cowering in fear. And I think that in many places in Asia, people aren't cowering in fear. They just realize that, okay, there's some stupid rules over here, but if I can do this over here, then that'll work. I see that every day here in this neighborhood where I am in Vietnam, I'm, I'm basically like I'm looking out on the ocean uh, from my place here. And, you know, like you said, people pay millions to live in Malibu. Um, I'm paying like $100 a week for this one bedroom here, like right on the coast. Um, but to go back to what you just said, like I see it every day, people breaking the rules here, you know, because there's like one-way roads on you know this side of the street, that side of the street, and I see people going both directions or going whichever the way they want to go. Um, you know, sometimes I'll see four people on one motorbike or something like this, and it's like you said, you know, they just do what works for them. You know, they don't care that there's a sign that says "Do not go this way." It's one way. Um, and funnily enough, you know, like one of the first times I went abroad uh, was in Tijuana, and I ended up going the wrong way on a one-way street and had to pay a bribe, unfortunately. But it's, it's awesome, though, because you see people acting like that here. You know, they just do what works for them. Um, the government doesn't really have a lot of control, like direct control over their lives. This is the real free market at work. I mean, <laughs> and, I mean, when you look at the example of, you know, a one-way street, people drive two ways. If that's what people in that community have decided works and they all kind of understand how it goes and they all know what's involved in that, um, you know, what's the problem with that? I mean, for example, I, you know, I have a home in Kuala Lumpur. And as you can imagine, living in the middle of the city, you know, I live in a building. And every time I lived in a building in my life, you realize that you are a smart person living in a relatively expensive building that's run by people who, you know, or, you know, their next job over is working at a, a fryer at Wendy's. And God bless them. Uh, we all, I mean, that's not, but, you know, I, I have no problem with them as people. But the challenge is when they come in and throw their weight around and act like, uh, you know, the great central planners when they really have no clue what's going on. And so that's kind of how the government operates. I mean, banks, apartment boards, these are just other bureaucracies. They're just other forms of government. And to see people saying, you know what, what works better for us is driving both ways on the street. Why not? Once you, you know, I, I'm not surprised by much anymore. I'm not freaked out by much anymore. You see people parking on sidewalks and driving this way and that way and doing whatever. I mean, that works for them. And I think that coming from the Western world, you think that, oh, they're bad people, they're crazy people. No, you know, we have to be efficient. People are going to pursue their own interests, right? And yeah, so, you know, and people said, you know, these conservatives in the United States, they talk about, oh, we don't want Washington telling us what to do. Yeah, because Washington, D.C. has no idea what happens in Topeka, Kansas. I don't know that people, you know, running Topeka, Kansas know that much what's going on in Topeka, Kansas in terms of what people, what would really work. But it doesn't stop them from making lots of rules. And so I think that in some of these countries with fewer rules, I think it works a lot better. On, on Again, this is kind of on a day-to-day -day level. Obviously, I'm not advising people to go out and break rules when it comes to banking or something. But um, again, there are ways to set it up to where you have more of the advantages. You're all about personal autonomy and focusing on what you can control and uh, not, you know, just letting other things go. If, if it's out of your reach, you know, don't even let it bother you. And that's, that's really important, I think, you know. Um, what's a, there's a saying that there's many things that a wise man might want to be ignorant of, and it seems like you've taken that literally, and that's what you're doing. Um, so how do you recommend to people that they kind of take back more control? Like, you know, one of the things you help people do is lowering their taxes. You mentioned some great places to, uh, on your blog to set up business like Estonia, uh, Georgia. Can you give me some, some tips here? Like how can we reduce our burden and what we pay to governments or how much we owe to governments? Well, what I realized a couple of years ago was, you know, everyone's situation is different. There's so many guys who are in the shiny object selling business. Um, what I tell people is if you call some guy down in Panama, Panama lawyer, 
Uh, first, if you get them to answer the phone, that's the big challenge, first of all. Uh, when they finally return your phone call and you say, well, hey, I want to save on taxes, they're going to say, well, uh, I recommend a Panama company, right? You know, Kel Sapriz. Uh Not too many Panama lawyers are recommending Malta companies. Um, so I think Georgia is a very interesting country. Is it a great place to start a business? Well, I think there are plenty of business opportunities there. Uh, is it a great place to start an international business? Maybe not. I think Estonia, we've talked about Estonia. I don't think it's the best place for many people. In fact, I think it's relatively overhyped, this whole digital thing. I mean, people, I had a guy recently said, I set up an Estonian company. I said, you realize you're going to pay tax eventually? He said, no, I was told no. So nobody really knows what's going on. Um, listen, I have guys who they say, you know what, because I want to do this, this, and this, I need to, to pay some tax somewhere. Um, if you want to get an EU passport, for example, and you need to be a resident somewhere, you might not be able to use a zero tax company. Other people who would just want to kind of bum around might want to use a zero tax company. But then the question is, well, what country are you from? If you're from the United States, after this new um, reform that just came out, you've got some problems. Uh, if you're from other countries, then you've got at least some things you need to do. So, I mean, to me, it all works together as a puzzle. It's where you're from, where were you paying tax before, where was your company before, do we need to shut that company down, then where do we set the new company up? That depends on are we taking credit cards, are we getting wire transfers, are we using PayPal, maybe there's a two-tier structure. So, you know, it's really not just as simple as saying go to the BVI uh, or go to Hong Kong. Um, I think that you know the, the 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 terms are constantly changing to where Hong Kong is not as appealing as it once was, at least on the surface. If you're from the U.S., you can't even open a, an account in Hong Kong these days. Yeah, and, and so there's actually there's a guy who I know and who I actually do some work with who kind of pokes fun at what I talk about you know, for why for Hong Kong companies. I mean, you know, obviously there are certain companies that you can go to other countries and get bank accounts. Um, the biggest problem that people have is when they go out and they just look at the kind of the checklist, like they're buying a refrigerator. Oh, the Seychelles has no reporting, no requirements, zero, 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 zero. Oh, well, okay. Good luck getting a bank account anywhere. Good luck collecting money anywhere. I had one guy who had a quarter of a million dollars frozen in the Seychelles and nobody would take it. And he had to figure out how to, who, how to get it out so he could use it and keep his business running. Um, so, yeah, Hong Kong is tough to open bank accounts. There are some workarounds for that now for certain people. I will also tell you, Danny, that, I mean, the numbers are going up. And this is part of why I'm really working with people, again, a very small amount of them, who are in that mid to high six figures and above. Because, you know, the days of throwing $1,000 in a corporate bank account, I guess there are some options that you can do that. But they're not really the most efficient options. Um, they come with some strings or with some restrictions or with some frustrations. And so I'm saying, you know, I mean, if you don't have at least 25 grand to throw in a business account, I mean, that's kind of like the minimum. Um, if you want kind of a good, easy service, um, it's becoming harder. It's still very doable. But I think we're starting to see some people here on the lower fringes start to get pinched out, to which I say, you know, if you're making, you know, less than a hundred grand a year, you might just tough it out and pay the tax. It might be easier and less expensive. Okay, good tips. So I would like to. Um, you mentioned that life is getting harder for U.S. citizens as a result of this recent tax reform. Could you share your thoughts on that, or what you see changing? Well, I mean, what has changed is that um, people are going to pay. Um, and so, I mean, some of the ways to live overseas and be nomadic, which the United States actually is pretty generous with, um, they're not generous with how much time you can spend living in the United States, but if you're somebody like me who just never cared to go back, um, they're pretty generous in that they don't really care where you live, uh, like many other countries do, like the Canada's, Australia's, UK's, they kind of want to know increasingly, but where are you going? Um, the U.S. never had that. But what they are going to say is, and, and they were pretty sloppy about this, uh, in order to, to get the Apples and the Facebooks and the Microsofts to pay up, um, they're going to make the average individual person pay up. Um, and so this is something that most tax guys don't really know too much about for the, the, the nomadic types. But you know, it's going to be very difficult to be a U.S. citizen. If you're a high-earning U.S. citizen, um, the party's over. 
um, you're just going to pay. And so I think it's going to force people to either make some extreme decisions uh, or just to go back and live in the U.S. and at least get something for what they're paying for. How are they going to enforce that? Are they going to start like putting freezes on U.S. bank accounts or you know, how are they going to force people to pay? Well, I mean, here's, you know, listen, there's two countries in the world that tax citizens based on their worldwide income. One's the United States, the other one's Eritrea, right? It's like a war-torn country that broke off from Ethiopia. And they have a 2% uh, diaspora tax for their expats. Nobody pays it. Nobody cares. Some people don't even know about it. And what's, you know, what, 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 how, what ability does Eritrea have to enforce that other than we won't renew your passport maybe uh, or you can't come back and get health care? Um, <laughs> The U.S. So, can send, like, uh, drone strikes and stuff like that, right? <laughs> uh, well, but, I mean, it's a mess. Obviously, the country's a mess. The United States, on the other hand, I mean, the IRS has offices around the world. I mean, you're required as a U.S. citizen, and some people don't know this, uh, you're required to file a tax return. I just had a friend who uh, was posting about this. Uh, she does some work for me occasionally, and uh, her friends who lived overseas were, like, amazed that you have to file a tax return. Even if you don't live in the United States a single day of the year, you have to do it. Only country in the world, really, that you have to do it. And so, I mean, the IRS is so well-connected. The IRS knows what time it is. Um, I mean, you know, not filing, in my opinion, is not an option. You want to be legal. Um, so in the past, you could have filed and you could have said, hey, I owe zero. And now you can file and you're going to say, hey, here's how much money I made. And uh, they're going to say, great, here's your bill, just like anybody else. So, I mean, you know. Uh, this is what happens when you when you have a nationalist uh, policy and you rush things through so that the president can have a win. Um, these are the unintended consequences. You know, it's the first tax reform in what over three decades, and I imagine it's not going to be fixed anytime soon. And so, if you're a high earning U.S. citizen, um, you may have not already been compliant before. I know some people who they just didn't even know, um, but now you've got some real problems. So. But I think lately the U.S. has been a little bit uh, generous with tax amnesty practices, right? And I think that's going to continue. Like, well, if you I, haven't I been think reporting. if people haven't been compliant, I mean, you know, uh, we could certainly talk to them about that. I would generally send them to, to a tax attorney to get them into compliance. Um, so I'll let the tax attorneys speak about that. I mean, certainly it really depends on did you know. I mean, I had um, – uh, a guy who just didn't know. He's like, well, hey, I've been living over here. Why Why am I supposed to do that? I never heard about that, you know, and he'd been paying taxes in a different country. And so this this was not some tax, you know, evader who was just thumbing his nose at the IRS. I mean, he legitimately didn't know. Meanwhile, he was paying a fortune in taxes somewhere else. When do they teach you this stuff? You know, it's not taught in high school or college or anything like that. Well, you know, it's, it's like they always say, Dan. I mean, the ignorance of the law is no defense, right? I mean, you're, uh, you know, we, we all do things every day. You know, they, they say in the United States, you commit what? The average person commits three felonies a day. And if they nail you, I didn't know that. Well, you're required to know all laws. I mean, the, the, the U.S. law book would be like the size of like 100 Bibles, but you're supposed to know all of them. And so I think that what I've increasingly uh, been dealing with is people who just say, you know what, um, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And I have guys who have given up their U.S. citizenship, and it's just like, wow, what a relief. They just feel like a relief. And it's not really even about the tax for many many people. It's about this feeling that there's just endless regulations. If you do this, you can be charged in the U.S., and you can't take money from these countries and that, and you can't talk to this guy. I remember I went out with an Iranian girl once, and I felt like I'm a criminal. Like, oh, like, is this a sanctioned event or something? You know, I, I, I went on a date, right? Like, is this part of the OFAC regime that, you know, like I bought her a dinner, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, the United States, more than anybody, really harasses people all around the world. Let's talk about that a little bit. That's interesting. You mentioned uh, dating. And do you find it to be particularly difficult as an expat, as an entrepreneur, to find someone who can, uh, I don't know how to finish the sentence, maybe keep your interest or someone that... Um, could be like a legitimate partner to you? Because I think that a lot of people that become expats or become nomads, like they don't really have like the next 20 or 30 years of their future mapped out. You know, they don't know if they're going to go back. They don't know, um, am I going to be a digital nomad for 20 years? Most people probably don't want to do that. You know, maybe they, they might reintegrate into society at some point. Um, and, you know, maybe they want to have some things like uh, a relationship or 
uh, a family, you know, things like this. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that there's certainly a period of time, I don't know if it's three years, five years, where I see, and I just had a guy recently call me and say, Andrew, I want to change my plan because, you know what, I'm just going to go back and live in Austin. It seems they're always going back to Austin. It's like the one place everyone goes goes to when they get up, when they come off, quote, unquote, the road, and they go back to, if it's the United States, it's Austin. But, um, I, you know, I've passed that. I think you've passed that mark. And, and I, you know, for me, um, I won't be going back to um, where I was born. Um, and, and I like the life that I have now. So what I've said, just to kind of preface your question is I'm going to have a couple homes, whether it's three or four homes that I own, that I'm committed to. They're not just rentals that can be taken away. I'm going to own a couple places where I want to be. And I'm going to kind of spend, uh, the winter months in uh, Asia. I'm going to have some places in Europe. I'll have a beach place perhaps to kind of relax. So I have a place to go when I want to kind of take a vacation. And then on occasion I'll go places for business. I'm going to Cambodia next month. Um, you know, I'll go to a resort somewhere or I'll go to Paris for a weekend or whatever, but I want to kind of be based in in these homes and then take little trips from there to do work and research. Uh, and I think that for me, part of that is, um, I see the frustration of staying in even the five star hotels where you'll see Wi-Fi doesn't work. I was at a JW Marriott recently. The Wi-Fi was half a meg down. Um, and it's just ridiculous. Um, you know, I'm like the super duper high level status at every hotel chain I stay at and I still have problems. So I'm tired of that. And I think the other part is the point that you're speaking to is the relationship part. I've never entirely been the guy who wants to go. You see these guys, you know, how I slept with 30 Filipinos in a month. Never been an interest of mine. <laughs> Always liked intelligent people and intelligent conversation. And sometimes that meant that, you know, you, you spend a week with somebody or two weeks or a month. And, and that was kind of the natural uh, end point of it. But, uh, I think that for me, the challenge that I think you and your listeners can identify with is, um, people don't understand what is beyond their, their, their understanding of their own life. I mean, my father said, if you make $50,000 and your neighbor makes 60,000, that guy's like filthy rich to you, to the average person, right? $10,000 more. That guy's like Mr. Trump, right? And to say, I have four homes, a lot of people don't understand that. To say, well, I just kind of go where I want, when I want. Like, well, well, how does that work? So I think that the challenge is finding the person who has an open enough mind to understand beyond the nine to five, beyond the commute, beyond the I rent an apartment, beyond the I take two weeks of holiday a year. I think when you get there, I think that you can have a lot of success. And I think that's what probably a lot of us are looking for. Yeah, that's a great point. So someone who's, um, it's good to find someone who's also worldly, who understands the world a little bit, because um, then you have a lot more to relate to. I've always found that, um, you know, some of the, like my ex-girlfriend, um, you know, she grew up in North Jakarta and she's still living, you know, in North Jakarta, which is like, you know, within the same five kilometers of when she, where she grew up. Um, so they're kind of like really socially conditioned, really culturally conditioned. Um, and there's just a whole world outside that they just don't understand. And I found that, you know, trying to open their eyes to that is quite frustrating. Um, I think you can't do it. I think you just, I mean, you have to, hey, listen, I mean, how many, how many men historically have complained about women trying to change them? I think, I mean, that's, there's a lesson there that you're not going to change people. You have to find people where it's a, it's again, is it a fit? It's not they're bad or they're stupid. I mean, it's just, is this a fit? And I think that um, in every country, there's a certain group of people who are somewhat worldly, who are somewhat interested in going different places. And um, obviously, I guess the big challenge is if people want to get married, they, you know, how are you going to raise the kids? It's one thing to say, you know, let's, let's spend the next five years kind of living in these three different countries and bouncing around. Can they take the next step and say, well, let's educate our children on the road. Let's have as I've often said, let's have them selling gum in, in the streets in Mexico City, you know, with the other kids, uh, learning what it's like. I mean, um, I think it's a difficult person to find. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I'm doing, for example, here in Kuala Lumpur, and I've done this in other cities with my team, you know, I'm hosting a party, you know, for the princely sum of $500. I'm going to have, you know, 40 or 50 people come buy a round of drinks and uh, we've got, I think, 31 different nationalities coming with all different kinds of experiences, people who are all not from their home country. Or they're, not, they're not living in their home country. Um, 
and that's a great way to meet people and also to do research for for nomad so there are ways to do it i think it's like anything else how committed are you to doing it that's fantastic well i've also hosted uh, dinner parties in different cities but um how, do, how exactly do you put together a $500 dinner and uh, pitch that to 40 or 50 people and get them to agree? Like, what, what are they getting in return? Well, I think that when you have people, I mean, 31 different nationalities, how many people have said, Andrew, I've been here for three months, I need to meet some people now. I think how many of us are in that boat? I mean, when I, I, I dated someone for, for a while, uh, for a couple of years, and, and the issue was both of us just, uh, we want to meet people, but the average person we meet, we're just not into, and like, we just don't want to put the effort in. How many people are in that boat? I think a lot. So when someone says, listen, all right, we're organizing a, a thing, that makes it easy. We're bringing everyone to one place. All right, the pot sweetener is I'm buying a round or two rounds or whatever. Um, you know, and then from there, I mean, we've used uh, Facebook groups. We used to actually do Facebook ads, which, you know, again, it, it almost sounds a little bit um, – uh, desperate, right? I'm, please, I'm, you know, I'm running an ad for friends, but, um, uh, <laughs> you know, for me, I look at it and say, you know what, how do I, I, I believe in everything, taking 100% responsibility, no matter what happens to you, I like to look at it and say, what could I have done? You know, how can I improve this situation? Because it's easy to point the finger and to blame. I've had people who've worked for me who, you know, no longer work for me, who point the finger and blame. Uh, when I no longer work with people, I say, well, hold on. Okay, what can I learn from that? Can we strengthen the contract? Should we not do this? Should we not do that? And I think that's what makes me successful. So, I mean, I'm all about responsibility. If I can place an ad and that does the job, you know, so what? I'm no longer concerned, Danny, if people think it's desperate or it's this or it's that. It's it's what I want to do. And uh, we found it to be very successful. And we've actually made some great contacts. A couple, actually, uh, colleagues and uh, a lot of friends, and it's been a lot of fun. That's one of the, that's the biggest thing that contributes to success in any marketing venture or any business venture, really, is that you have to get over yourself, you know? Um, you just have to put yourself out there. You have to put your ads out there, and if someone says, Andrew, fuck off, you know, I don't want to see your ad, uh, you just laugh it off, you know, and you just keep doing it because it's what you want to do. At the end of the day, man, again, it's like, I mean, <laughs> in, in my business, people call me. I just had it multiple times recently, Andrew, you're the only guy who does what you do, where it's not just, I go to the Malta guy, I go to the Panama guy, I go to this guy, that guy, seven different guys. I go to you and you figure it out. Like nobody else does that. And so, you know, the rare time when someone says, Andrew, thanks for your time. I don't want to work with you or let me think about it, whatever else I say, well, okay. I mean, you're the one paying a quarter million dollars in tax. I'm not, if it's a friend, I mean, you know, I don't want to come to your party and meet new people. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you have to look at it from the perspective of, you know, you're doing something where you're bringing value. And there's a confidence there that for a long time I probably lacked and that impacted me. And if I look back and I would have had more confidence in myself, my businesses in the past would have been even bigger. Um, I suppose the current business could be bigger. I just don't want it to be bigger. But the confidence has really been a key issue. When you believe you're doing something great, I think you're unstoppable. Yeah, and confidence comes from doing, basically. You know, I learned a phrase long ago uh, that says, basically, always take errors on the side of action. You know, err on the side of action. Like, if you see a fork in the road, take it. If someone invites you on a trip to uh, Guatemala or something, you know, take it. If you, you have a chance to uh, buy one-way ticket to China, just go. You know, there's nothing, don't let abstract fears of the worst that could happen hold you back. Right? That's where confidence comes from, just from doing and... Um, having enough of these outside external experiences that show you that, um, you know, if, if you feel that you're not worthy, if you feel like you can't do it, um, you know, try to maybe you can prove yourself wrong, you know, because maybe that's just a, a conversation that you're having in your head that has no validity in the, in the real world. I, I, I think that if you said, you know, Andrew, what, what's one of your secrets to success just in life in general? I would say that's that I'm never fearful, but I'm always conscious of a risk. I'm not the consummate entrepreneur who just goes out and just doubles and triples down and just puts everything in. Um, I'm, I'm a mix between an investor and an entrepreneur where I like to take calculated risks. I like cash flow businesses. I always keep you know cash on the side. I want to make sure that no matter what happens, I'm always going to continue my lifestyle. So I'm not an Elon Musk where I make a billion dollars and then plow it into something else. And if it doesn't work, I'm living in a hubble somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I've never been fearful. I mean, whether it was 19 years old, 
and, 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 you know, uh, just picking up the phone and calling people and saying, Hey, you know, how can I help you? Uh, I was never fearful of that. And like, why would you be, you know, um, you know, having a party, why would you be fearful of that? Um, so I've never been fearful, but always conscious of risk. Excellent. So, um, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I know this probably wrapped up this interview soon because uh, it's getting a bit long, but what are some of your favorite destinations to live in, work in? Um, where have you had the best experiences? Well, as I said, I mean, we all vote with our feet. Mm-hmm. And if you're living somewhere you don't like, do you realize there's a reason for that? Um, I mean, I'm in Malaysia. I love Malaysia. I've said Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur in particular is kind of the hub of um, – accessible sophistication in Southeast Asia and in Asia in general. It's English speaking, it's well connected, it's warm, it's pleasant, it's modern, it's airy. Things generally work. I like it. Um, This is kind of my go-to place. Uh, I mentioned that I like Cambodia for investing. If you're kind of looking for kind of starting out, I don't know if it's that much cheaper, uh, but that's a good place to go. Uh, You know, I've been probably the biggest advocate in the world of Georgia. And I think that I'm being proven right that so many people are going there. Tourism is through the roof. They're saying it's going to be the fastest growing GDP city in Europe uh, in the next 20 years is Tbilisi. I think that that's really becoming part of the nomad scene. Actually, I'm kind of afraid. I don't want to be over, overrun by people, but I actually own a very nice property there. So I guess if people come, my property will go up in value. Uh, Eastern Europe, you know, I have a place in Montenegro. I think that that is so much better than the Greeces and the Italys when it comes to being a property owner, getting things done, being efficient, super easy. I have a residence permit there. It took me like a day to get it. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, for lifestyle, Mexico, uh, Mexico City is amazing. I'm a city guy. I like it. Amazing English, amazing service, restaurants, some of the best restaurants in the world. Puyol, I mean, fantastic. The shops, probably the best service I've gotten from any shop in the world for like nice boutiques was in Mexico city. Um, so that's kind of my go-to place in the Americas now. Bogota is nice too, but I think Mexico city really shines. So I guess those are the places that I'm spending time, uh, for this year. Um, so that, I guess that, you know, if you want to know what I'm doing, not what I'm saying, that's what I'm doing. I find that, um, you mentioned Malaysia. I've been going in and out of Kuala Lumpur a lot the last few years, and it's fantastic for just getting cheap flights and easy access to everywhere. And basically, I want to go everywhere. And um, it's amazing. Like, I had a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Sri Lanka. It was like $35 one way, which is ridiculous. And that's including I'm, Texas. Yeah, yeah I'm flying. Uh, so, I'm again, this is the one challenge that Tbilisi has, though it's getting better and, and mm-hmm. seeing that I'm mostly going east. I can fly Qatar or Emirates, and it's pretty easy. But um, Tbilisi has this challenge. Kuala Lumpur does not have this challenge where you can fly anywhere. I'm flying in business class to Cambodia for less than $100 <laughs> uh, on Malaysian Airlines next month. So, uh, you know, I think that's uh, it's amazingly impressive. Listen, I know some people like Bangkok, and I've, I've, I've made my opinions on Bangkok and Thailand in general clear in the past. Many disagree. I Again, it's not a fit for me. Um, some of the things are similar there. I like the uh, Kuala Lumpur being a bit more quiet, that you have the hustle and bustle, but you also have a bit more of a laid back atmosphere rather than a New York or a Hong Kong atmosphere that you'd have in Bangkok. But uh, no, KL is, uh, to me, one of the hidden gems. And I'm actually seeing so many more tourists now. And I'm actually, on a very positive note, I'm seeing people, I mean, 31 nationalities, my party, I'm meeting Egyptians, Tunisians, Algerians, Iranians. I mean, this is a very (laughs) interesting part of the world for me. And you have so many people from everywhere here because it's a Muslim country. You've got these countries where you might not meet those people in any other places. Yeah, because they get uh, visa-free travel because they're part of the Islamic world. And Malaysia welcomes them with open arms. And uh, it also gives people like us, you know, three months visa-free if you just come on a tourist visa. Um, you know, just for two or they are going to start cracking down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are going to start being a bit more difficult. For some of us, it, it, it's it's 30 days. Uh, for Western nationality, it's 90, and it's been you can kind of go in and out. Exactly. I think that they will not be as difficult as Thailand. I think they're going to become a bit more difficult. It's a sad direction that everywhere in the world is going. I'll tell you, if you want to go somewhere in the tourist visa, go to Tbilisi. You get uh, 360 days. Go to Georgia. So what are your tips for, like, moving around so much? Are you... Um flying around on points or do you do like a lot of travel hacking stuff like that how do you uh 
roam the world in the most cost-effective manner? I guess I'm probably not doing it very cost-effectively. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I fly enough that I get status on the airlines. I get certain perks, and I love the lounge in Istanbul. I love the lounges in Dubai. I'll tell you what I've, what I've decided to do. For the longest time, I fought against this because I felt like it's not worth it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in the business class. I'm on team business class now. Um, if it's more than, like, two or three hours, uh, I'm, just, I'm just paying. And it's a cost uh, for... Uh, you know, having, uh, I guess I've just decided I'm finally going to reward myself. I'm, I'm going to be comfortable. I'm not going to be squished. I'm not going to be paying for exit row seats and then they change the equipment and then, sorry, you're stuck in 88J in like a sardine. I've just decided I'm just going to pay. I'm going to eliminate all the frustration. And that's been one thing that I've decided to do in recent years is just say, what are all the things that cause me frustration, cause me pain, cause me difficulty, cause me delays? And how do I eliminate them? And when it comes to flying, I've just said, you know what? I'm just going to suck it up and pay. Um, so that's what it is. Now, I think that um, this year, seeing that I'm going to go from about 200 nights in hotels down to probably 70, I'm going to save a lot of money on hotels. And seeing that I'm going to be doing a lot less you know, schlepping from you know, little flights, I'll save a lot of money on flights. So I don't think that my costs are actually going to go up um, that much. Um, but you know, if you have a couple homes and you do limited regional travel, which may or not, may not be an economy, you know, Air Asia, Kuala Lumpur to Singapore, you can tough it out for an hour. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I think that if you do my, my three or four bases approach, you fly between them a couple times a year in business. I mean, you fly cheapo flights in the region, you know, probably cost you 10 or 12 or 15 grand a year. Um, so, I mean, I think if for someone who's doing all right, that's it's not a huge expense. I do have points, but quite frankly, I find it sometimes, you know, it, it exceeds my my hourly rate. You know, um, I think that everyone needs to have an hourly rate. What do you make divided by two thousand? That's your rate. And if it takes, you know, if, if you're spending ten hours to save two hundred dollars on a flight, might not be worth it. Where does that two thousand come from? Well, I'm, right. so, I mean, if, I'm saying if you're living in the United States, for example, and you get two weeks off, that means you're working 50 weeks a year. Let's assume 40 hours a week. That's 2,000 hours a year. So if you're making a million bucks a year, your time's worth $500 an hour. And so you can probably outsource most of the things you're doing yourself for less than 500 an hour. If you're making 100 grand, your time's worth $50 an hour. So I, I'm really trying to live and die by that this year. Um, yeah, that's fantastic advice. I in my first book, uh, Buy Your Own Island, I I say like these are all the activities you could be doing work wise, lifestyle wise, and there's four different quadrants in this basically in this pyramid. And at the top you have your high lifetime value activities, high dollar per hour activities, low dollar per hour activities, and then zero or negative activities, whether it's like browsing the web or you know checking social media constantly, um, and then kind of list out all the things that you do, categorize them, and then say, all right, I'm just going to spend my time on the top half. And everything else down here, I need to like remove it from my life, or I need to delegate it, and that's that's a really helpful exercise I find. It sounds like you're doing the same, where you're setting up these filters to uh, stop wasting your time on things that just aren't important on the minutia, and focusing on your Gina zone, you know what you do best. And for me, like you know, like I did about um, I did a lot of public speaking last year. I did about 15 talks, and I find that's a fantastic way to market myself. It's a fantastic way to get my content out there relationships with prospects for example that's one example you know but then there's a lot of things that just are a waste of my time and I just need to set up a filter so that either they don't reach me I don't waste my time doing that or I have someone else take care of that and I find uh, and I'll one more thing that's really worked for me mm-hmm. is well two things number one is elimination getting rid of stuff I had an assistant I had her doing so many silly things because you don't want to fill her time what I what I what I did to, to solve that problem was build relationships so we used to go around. I, we do these photo shoots for our business because it speaks to our transparency. People want to see what we're doing. They want to feel the vibe. I used to hire photographers in each city. I found one great photographer. He's a friend of mine. He's an amazing photographer. And I'm flying him into Kuala Lumpur. And then we're going to go to Langkawi. And then we're going to go uh, – he's going to do some photos for my friend in Cambodia. And I'm just paying what it takes because it's so much easier 
should just pay a little bit extra sometime. And I have to deal with finding some guy in Asia. And then it turns out the photos aren't any good. You got to do it all over again. So for me, building relationships, I'm going to fewer restaurants than ever. I'm dealing with fewer people than ever in terms of providers because I just, if it works, why not go back? You know, I'll stay exactly. in an amazing hotel in name a city. And then the next time, oh, let me try the other one. Well, no, why not go back to the one that was amazing and then just eliminate the stress of having to call and figure out and then tell the hotel, okay, Mr. Henderson likes things done this way. Just, you know, stick with the same people and maybe yeah. it costs a little bit more, you know, use Uber Black rather than Uber X because the guys are smarter and they don't, they find you and you save 10 minutes of frustration. I mean, for me, I've actually eliminated the need for many assistant tasks by just cutting stuff out of my life. And just saying, I know this is going to be a problem to take the UberX, and the guy never speaks English. And ah, I'm just going to pay two dollars more. <laughs> and I find so much of it is making smart decisions. And if you have something that works, just double down on that because making yes. decisions is the the form of it's the activity that consumes the most mental RAM, you know. And like President Obama said once that. I'm only wearing the same suits every day, you know, blue and gray suits, because I need to focus on making more important decisions of what I'm going to wear today. Or for you or me, like where I'm going to eat today or how I'm going to get from point A to point B. Um, you know, if you can eliminate a lot of hassle and just pay $2 extra, it's definitely well spent. That's time well spent, money well spent. It, it, it is an amazing, and it's a great marketing understanding that, you know, why is it that sometimes we're so easy, it's so easy for us to go and say, $900 on those shoes where they're probably not that much different than the $100 shoes. But then we get upset that Food Panda started charging a dollar and a half delivery fee and we're going to protest and we're going to walk a mile to avoid paying. I mean, come on. Um, and, and I think we've all fallen victim to some of that stuff at one point or another. Um, so yeah, for me, it's just about doing less, having less. I mean, I'm just, I'm shutting stuff down. I'm shutting things down in our operation. We're just saying, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do this anymore. And what I find is we're more productive, we're more focused, our brain fog clears away and we're just more and more successful. We make more money, we have more fun, we have more time to enjoy life. And if something is causing you problems time and time again, probably just tell you to eliminate it. You know, not everything should be fixed. Sometimes just eliminate so you have a uh, YouTube channel, you have a blog with a bunch of articles, you have a whole bunch of content that people want to get more information from you. Um, can you plug some of those and then also just kind of tell me where you plan to go with everything, like what's next for you? Well, nomadcapitalist.com is the website. We've got, um, I guess, 1,300 articles. Uh, we have a bunch of audio uh, stuff we have uh, 300 videos, and we're really focusing a lot on um, doing some videos. Um, you know, I think that more of the same. I mean, I, again, I'm, I, I have such a clear head about what I'm doing and what the business is doing. And I realized, you know what? I am really the business. Um, I'm out getting residencies. I'm out working towards citizenships. I'm working on the St. Lucia citizenship right now. Is one thing that I have talked about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm acquiring homes or in a couple places where I have homes, I'm, up, I'm, I'm buying newer homes and selling and doing that. And, you know, I'm learning a lot about how everything works and increasing my knowledge. Um, and that's really where I'm going and imparting that knowledge to where when the guy from the United States, who's a Bitcoin guy or an Amazon guy or an e product or whatever guy, um, who, you know, wants to get a passport, wants to pay very little tax, wants to do this, wants to do that. I mean, it's like, yeah, hey, man, I've done everything. Here's your plan. Here's what I recommend. And by the way, I know everything, every possible pockmark and step along the way, and we can help you. Um, so that's what I'm doing. And it's really about enhancing my life. And I guess when you do that, there's just this vibrational uh, force that allows you to go out and help others who are in the same boat. Um, which is why if someone comes from me from, you know, my Egyptian friend, how do I get a passport? I don't really know much about being an Egyptian, Danny. Um, but I do know what it's like to be from the United States and pay a lot of money and, and want freedom. And so I'm just going to keep working towards that. And, um, you know, like I said, four and a half or four and a quarter million people read our stuff on that website every year. Uh, a few people end up getting some help at a high level and we solve their problems. And I think that that's just going to continue. 
Well, thank you for your time. We've covered so much on this interview, uh, so many topics here. What would you say is your best advice for someone that wants to start listening, uh, start living this lifestyle? What would you want them to take away from this? Well, I always say, I mean, action, as you said, I mean, action is the key. You just have to dive in. I'll, I'll just leave you with one thing that I do hear from folks occasionally. You know, let's say I, I help them put together a plan of action they need to follow. And sometimes they say, well, I don't understand how this works. And I say, well, you know, uh, I don't understand how my washing machine works or I don't understand how my food last night was prepared. Uh, what I do know is I got the end result. And I also know that when you dive in and when you figure out how something works and when you do it, you start to learn a lot more. I think that some people want to, they want to know every little detail because they're so afraid, right? The thing I said, I've never really been afraid. They want to know every little detail because they're afraid something could go wrong. You know what? If you try and live this lifestyle, I can tell you something is going to go wrong. There are going to be hiccups. That's part of the process. They're not going to be fatal. And if you have the proper advice, then they're not even going to be that damaging. But it's not going to be perfect. And if you need to know the answer to every question before you start, I can tell you, you've already failed. So dive in, understand you don't know everything, let alone much of anything, perhaps, and learn as you go. And you can do it my way, where you spent 10 years kind of figuring it out. If you want to do it the fast way, you can get with someone who's already done it and kind of learn from them and you know put the pedal to the metal. It's up to you. But I think that uh, you know doing is what teaches you. Um, and you have to understand that going in, that you're not going to know every little detail until you do it. Reminds me of a classic quote by Winston Churchill, and he said that success is not final, failure is not fatal. It's the courage to continue that counts. It's putting yourself out there, showing up every day, doing what needs to be done. And that's what you have done uh, for more than a decade now. And I just want to say thank you again, Andrew. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. I always enjoy it. My pleasure, man. Anytime. Take care, man. Bye-bye.